Hey, this is Amanda and Shelby. Come and see is a podcast where we invite you to join in with us as we study the Word of God. Bi-weekly, we're going to upload an episode recapping what we studied in small group the week before. So today we're going to talk about Galatians chapter 1. Before you listen to this podcast, make sure you've read Galatians chapter 1 so you have an understanding. So these things will make a little more sense if you're familiar with the entire chapter. So we're going to get right into it. And Shelby's going to start off with Galatians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 and we'll break those down. Before we start talking verse by verse, I just kind of wanted to say something that I kind of noticed when I got into Galatians chapter 1. Thinking about the fact that Paul would establish these churches as we talked about in the introduction, he would follow back up with them. And he even said at one point when I was reading through Acts, I didn't even write down the reference, unfortunately, but he said, hey, let's go over there and see how they're doing. And I'm like, oh, like, it's really, really cool that he has this relationship with these people where he's established these churches to where he wants to go back and follow up with them and just see how they're doing. It kind of helps us to understand as we're disciple making that we should never treat someone like they're a project to win them over to Christ and then just abandon them to figure out the rest on their own. When we're working on disciple making um, and we're ministering to people, it should be a relationship like Paul had with these churches that he established and not some sort of tally of salvations. Yeah. So overarching theme, I think that's kind of cool to see. Yeah, definitely. So when you're looking at the first two verses of Galatians, he goes ahead and says, hey, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. And I wasn't appointed an apostle by men, but through Jesus Christ. He's already saying like, hey, this is who I am and this is what authority I have. I'm not just some regular guy. I was actually called specifically by God to carry out his message to the Gentiles. This is important because some of those Judaizers, like we talked about last week, were probably saying things like he wasn't a true apostle. So he kind of just comes in strong, like, hey, this is who I am, and this is what authority I have. It's been given directly from Jesus Christ and God the Father, he says. And then the rest of the greeting, verses 3 through 5, is interesting, too, because it's kind of different from his typical greetings in his letters. In almost all of his letters, I'm going to spell them out, the ones that I looked in, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. They all have this section of thanksgiving and prayer. There are probably some scripture that you are familiar with if you've been involved in small groups before because they are some of the most encouraging passages in all of scripture because he'll write things like, hey, I've been praying constantly for you. I'm so thankful for you and I'm thankful for your love. He applauds them for their faith and he says that he thanks God every time he remembers them. Those are the types of things when you're reading, you just feel all like, oh, I'm loved. And in the book of Galatians, it's interesting because he completely leaves out this typical Thanksgiving and he gets right into his rebuke. You kind of ask yourself, like, why does he skip that typical Thanksgiving? It was so important. He's like, got to cut right to it. (laughs) We get down to it because this is very, this is urgent even. Yeah, so he doesn't leave this out because he's not thankful for them. And I think that that's something that's like, let's just put that out there. But they're so important to him that he's cutting it out because he needs them to hear it right this second. Yes, he's like, this is an urgent message that I need to get out to you. It's kind of one of our clues that we talked about last week of, hey, this is no small thing. What the Judaizers are teaching is not just like, oh, you know, it's fine that they threw that in there. It's a big deal. 
Um, I do think what's cool is what he does include, because it is such a short little greeting, but what he does include is Jesus gave himself for us. And so it's like, got to hop to it, but can't leave this out. And I think that's really cool. And I also really like that it says who gave himself, because we hear in John three sixteen that God gave his son. And it is like, it makes, makes me feel loved because we're reminded that Jesus had a choice and like as much as God gave his son, he gave himself because at any time he could have stopped it. He knew what he was going to endure and this is a little off topic, but he knew he was going to be separated from God and he never had been. And so just a reminder of like how much he loved us is right there in that one little blip of the intro that he gave himself and mm-hmm. it wasn't just, you know, Jesus could have stopped it and he didn't because he loved us and he wanted eternity with us. It's awesome that Paul didn't leave that out because it is just as important as the rest of the message. It's good too because his whole point in writing this letter is to basically remind them what the gospel is. Yeah. And this short paragraph is the gospel. It basically sums it all up into this short little blip right here. And gives God the glory for all of it. When you're reading through one of the Gospels, like our small group just studied the book of John, throughout the entire book, Jesus is continually pointing back to the Father over and over again. So when Paul says, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen, we're seeing that Paul's motivation is the same motivation that Jesus had. And that's important. Yeah. Something that I read that Paul used the grace to you and peace from God, our Father, five other times in the New Testament and that he always says it in this order because without grace we don't have peace and I just really liked that because it's true our peace comes from grace you can't have one without the other really so I just liked that just a little fun fact so looking at verses six through nine Paul's basically going to go into hey there's There's no other gospel. There's only one. It's interesting because in the beginning, he's like, I'm astonished that you so quickly are deserting who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And immediately he's like, not that there is another one because there isn't. (laughs) Um, He's pleading with them. He's like, guys, I just left you. Like, how could you already have been this fooled by people? He's astonished. He's shocked. And it's in present tense. Like you said, I think you said that in small group, it's present tense. Like, you're still doing it. It's not something like it's currently happening. Yeah. That that word quickly deserting, the word deserting is written in present tense. And this is another reason why the message is so important because at the same time that he's writing this letter is when this stuff is happening. So he's like, I've got to get this out quickly because the longer it takes me, the more people are going to be led astray. Yeah. And that's kind of sweet that he, yeah. he cares so much. And it's uh, present tense. It's still... It's still relevant. Oh, yeah. Present tense, like, still relevant today. Yeah. (laughs) He also says that there are some who are troubling the Galatians and they're distorting the gospel. So we talked in small group about the meaning of the word distort. To warp or bend, to mislead a false account of something. Yeah. So you're basically perverting and corrupting the gospel whenever you're teaching anything that's different. They were causing the Galatians to be confused. They had been preached this message of freedom. They believed this message. They obeyed the gospel. So they think like, hey, I'm on the right track. Things are going good. And then these people come in who basically are like, no, no, no. You also have to do these things. 
And that's super confusing to people. Well, I mean, picture you're sitting at church on Sunday and you're talking about, I mean, you're in, you're in John and you're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And they're like, oh, and by the way, so without mm-hmm. just this part, like you on top of this have to insert more rules or, you know, a, a list of things you have to do before you're saved. We, we would literally rock your world. You'd be like, wait, what? Yeah. And where did that come from? Well, and anytime that there's confusion added in, it's like, okay, so now do I really understand or is someone else going to come and try to tell me something different? Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important that Paul's establishing his authority. He's like, if you're not hearing this directly from me and it's different from what I told you, then don't listen to it. Yeah. The other word that I love in this is it says that, and I don't love it because it's not a great thing, (laughs) Um, but the word trouble, it says there's some who trouble you. This word is the word terrasso, and it's the same word that is used when it's describing Jesus when he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he's greatly troubled about what's going on, that his friend just died, even though he knows the end of the story. There are some who trouble you is is not a small thing. If he's that upset about his friend dying, and they're causing the Galatians to have this same type of inner turmoil. It's this anxiety. It takes away your calmness of mind. It's taking away your peace that comes through grace. And that's really the point of their their messages to steal your peace, to steal your joy, to steal your freedom. And getting into the reason why this message from the Judaizers is such a big deal is that it is abandoning the very grace of God. Yeah. You know, we talk about the word grace all the time. And and I think that it's another one of those that would be good to like give a definition for. But I think the big thing that he's reminding the Galatians of is, hey, you guys have experienced the grace of God in your salvation. How can you take this beautiful experience and so quickly turn away from it? I want to read, and this is one of those verses that it seems like everybody knows because it's quoted so often, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to go ahead and just read verse 9. This is when Paul basically has this thorn in his side that has been given to him by the Lord. And we don't know exactly what this thorn is, but it's painful. And he has pleaded with God three times to take this away. And he basically gives him this answer. But he said to me, this is what God said to him. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So he's saying my grace is sufficient for you. Paul is in physical pain and grace is so powerful that his grace is sufficient for that and his power is made perfect in weakness. Like just kind of let that sink in to the, the power of what this grace means. Yeah. And the, and the reminder that we need it. Yeah. The irony of the Judaizers message is that in their efforts to try to find and obtain perfection, they're actually turning away from God who has already essentially made them perfect through Christ. Right. And that's just how backwards this is. When you're turning your focus away from God and his grace and putting it back on yourself, you're putting it back on someone who could never be enough. Yeah. And the gospel says that, you know, we need a savior and that we cannot save ourselves, which could be hard to cope with because we do want to control our our lives and we don't want to rely on other people. But the gospel says we need a savior. Yes. And Romans 11, 5 and 6 says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace 
If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Yeah. If it had anything to do with our works, then what does grace even mean? Right. Because, again, it's not something you can earn. Like, we never could. Like, that doesn't even make any sense. Well, even think about, like, what it does to you if, as a, as a person. Like, we're, I think a lot of us are naturally competitive people. I know, I mean, what? it is. <laughs> if that's what it was about, like, one-upping each other and who can do more and who can be better... How would we have the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17? And at what point are you even thinking about Jesus and not yourself? Yes. An easy message to get behind is one that says, if I can work for it, the achiever in me is going to do it. Yeah. When I'm in control, I feel comfortable, but that's not the gospel at all. Right. And so it takes you back. Whenever you're crucified with Christ, your life should look different after that. But it doesn't look different after that if you're saying that now you've got to basically continue to strive and achieve the way that you did before you were a Christian. Yeah. In verses eight and nine, Paul tells us, hey, you know, he's already said there's only one gospel. So with that in mind, if you hear something preached to you that is different from what I already preached to you, even if it's an angel from heaven, then it's not the gospel because he already preached them the gospel and that's it. That's the only one. It's literally never going to change. Yes. It's never <laughs> going to change throughout time. It's still relevant. It's current. Yeah. Never going to change. Nothing's been added to it since. <laughs> he it repeats himself again in verse nine, which shows you like, hey, this is important. Anytime something's repeated, pay attention. It's interesting because the Judaizers message was wrapped in truth. They take the truth of the gospel and they're basically telling that, but then we're adding in this little bit here. And so that kind of seems like maybe it's a little bit innocent. Maybe it's not that big of a deal, but Paul's saying that it, it really is because accursed means like eternal damnation. Like it doesn't mean something minor. He, yeah. His words sound harsh here, but it's because this is not a small deal. And it sounds like... um almost unloving like basically let them be damned if they're going to add anything in to what the gospel truly is but it's because he loves these people so much and this is their salvation this is their eternal life with god that is at stake if they listen to these other people and so as unloving as it sounds it is honestly so loving because he's talking about and again like shelby said this is a message that's going to be passed down and passed down and passed down. So, you know, the more diluted it gets, you're talking not even the gospel anymore. It's a very loving thing that he's saying. It's just harsh. Any slight alteration is no longer truth. There's a line yeah. in the sand when it comes to the gospel, and that line separates truth from untruth, and that's it. There's yeah. no gray areas in that. Yeah. And it's a thing, you know, we can disagree on certain things from um, church to church, but the gospel is not one of them. Right. So Colin at our church, he's um, one of our pastors. He recently gave a cool illustration that kind of exemplifies the Judaizers problem. And he said, what's your favorite drink? And someone in the crowd said, Dr. Pepper. And he's like, okay, so how much water could I add to that Dr. Pepper before it wasn't Dr. Pepper anymore? People who love Dr. Pepper are going to be like, mm, not much. I mean, even if a little bit of ice melts, I'm done, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's the same thing. We're, we're slightly altering Dr. Pepper. There's still a lot of Dr. Pepper in it. I mean, there's still a lot of truth in it. 
And um, someone like me who doesn't drink Dr. Pepper, I might not notice. Exactly. And so if it's the first time I'm drinking it, I'm going to be like, okay, probably not going to drink it again because I don't like it. But I'm not going to notice that it's different from its original state. Yes. And that's why the, the passion for wanting people to know God's word and know it fully comes from because false teachers are going to rely on the fact that you don't know your Bible to make you believe something. And they can even use scripture to make you believe something. But if it's watered down or if it is contrary to the gospel in any way, then it's not truth that you're being taught. It's super important to um, not just believe what you're told. When someone's reading the Bible to you or reading a verse to you or quoting scripture somewhere, it's super important that you don't just take everyone's word, take everyone for their word because everyone doesn't have great intentions like the Judaizers, um, but it's, it's obviously still true today. People will pull scripture from the Bible and twist it into a different meaning and it might even make you feel like, oh, I love that. But then you read it with the whole, like the whole chapter and you're like, this is mean anything like they were talking about. And so again, with like, we have the tools at our fingertips to make sure what we're hearing and believing and even the ways we act, we can, we can cross reference and double check and make sure those ways are true because we do have the Bible at our fingertips. So don't just take Shelby's word or my word or your pastor's word, be in the word. And it's important to Make sure what you're hearing is the truth. And fortunately for us, we have the Bible. The Galatians didn't have the Bible, but they had Paul, so. So verse 10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What is our motivation? What are we trying to prove? Whose approval do we care about? The only approval Paul cared about was the approval of Christ. I love how he says, if I were still trying to please man. So yeah. that means he used to, but he's yep. different now. And that difference is the gospel. And if you think about it, this letter probably would not have pleased man. Like the people that were going to receive it may not have been super pumped because it's just something else. Like you told us this and then we learned this. That was wrong. <laughs> and now you're tell- now we're hearing this again. And um, it may not it definitely wouldn't pump up the Judaizers. So it's not something that's going to please all of man, but it's definitely going to please God. And it's just kind of, is this going to make me more popular or is it going to make me more faithful? And it's just like a motive checker, honestly. Yeah. And Paul's basically like, Hey, like I'm not a politician. I'm not going around trying to make everybody happy. I don't care about the applause. Do not worship me. Worship God. He's always turning the focus back to God, just like Jesus did. Um, And he already told us at the beginning of this chapter, my message didn't come from man. So if that's the case, then why would I be afraid of man or worried what they think about it? I don't. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you think about me. Yeah. And that's something that is beautiful, too, when you're thinking about disciple making, because everyone's always so worried about rejection. Like, what are people going to think about me if I'm preaching the gospel to them. When you put that in perspective and you're like, oh, wow, it's not about me at all. And it really doesn't matter because they're not rejecting me. They're rejecting God. It kind of takes that pressure off of you. Okay. Getting into verses 11 and 12, we talk about how Paul received the gospel. 
The gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have to figure out what does revelation mean? A revelation is like surprising information. You didn't know it and boom, now you know it. It's like an aha moment, almost, but this is a revelation what he didn't come to this revelation on his own so it's directly from god yeah he discloses a truth or instruction concerning things unknown before paul's story is really good if you want to read about it um it happens in acts chapter 9 basically he's on the way to persecute christians and god just kind of stops him right in his tracks literally on the road to damascus a bright light shines he's blind and he says it's um god the son and he says why are you persecuting me and he's like who are you and he says i'm jesus i'm the guy you're persecuting like here i am so he 100 percent just reveals himself to paul this is basically why paul is able to become an apostle he was not with jesus during his earthly ministry Obviously, he wasn't following him then. He didn't witness his miracles firsthand, wasn't with him hearing all of these sermons, but God reveals all of that to him where he can still be someone who shares this message firsthand. And that's really cool. It really is. I didn't know that about Paul before reading Galatians. I mean, I know of his past, but I didn't know how he became a Christian. Reading that was like, what? Because I just had no, I had no clue. And I don't know why I never even thought to wonder how he became a believer, but it's a really cool story. So I'll read it. Um, I'm going to read a couple things from Acts 22 and Acts 26. These are two times in the book of Acts where Paul retells his story to people. And it's really cool because he's using his testimony. So Acts 22 verse 14 And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So this is basically Paul telling people what Ananias said to him when he got to Damascus. Ananias was who he met that was going to kind of guide him in the right direction. And he meets him and tells him this. What I think happened after this is when Paul basically says in Galatians that he went to Arabia. Yeah. I think that sometime during that time, God basically reveals everything to him. You know, and Mm -hmm. on the road to Damascus, he says, this is who I am. And Paul obeys the gospel. Right. But now he's getting this message directly from God. You know, we're going to cover in this chapter that he doesn't go talk to the other apostles, but his message is the exact same as theirs, and there's no other way that that could happen if God's hand wasn't in it. He didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't talk to anyone, and it's literally because he didn't have to. He didn't have to make sure his story matched up, and um, if you think about it, Paul never wavers, and like his faith is so strong that, I mean, it's just unquestioned, and I, I love that. It's never like... And then Paul kind of backtracked a little bit. I don't know. I I just love, I love Paul. That's it. Another time in Acts chapter 26, Paul is telling this story again, telling his testimony again, whenever he's um, (laughs) important. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm going to read verses. I'm probably just going to read verses 16 through 18, but this would be a good time to just read through his entire conversion story again. 
but rise and stand upon your feet. This is God talking. I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to do the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So that's kind of where I get like, oh, well, he, he's going to appear to him again. This yeah. is not the only time. Yeah. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So God basically goes ahead and tells them, him, this is going to be your mission. You are going to share this with the Gentiles. Now, take a step back for a second. Paul is a Pharisee. Pharisees do not like Gentiles. <laughs> um, he would not, this would not have been something that he would have thought in his head. Like, you know what? I'm going to go <laughs> tell the Gentiles. Like, that'd be cool. God's opening Something that he doesn't even believe. Yes, and he's bringing in unity, and this 100% came from God, because this is not something that would have been an original thought in Paul's head. Right, and uh, he does say, like, he, I mean, he was zealous for his traditions of his father. He was not out looking, I mean, he was on the way to ask if he could take, like, women and children as prisoners for converting to Christianity, and so he wasn't out looking for another truth. He knew his truth and well, the truth that he was told by his fathers and their fathers. And he was not out looking for Jesus. He had the absolute opposite goal on the road to Damascus. And that's just important too because it was, would not have been his, his idea. But he 100% was not looking for it. And he, he says so too. Just... I was zealous for my father's traditions. They're not something he wanted to turn his back on. Yeah, and that actually transitions as great into verse 13 through 17. He was someone who was such an achiever, such a hard worker, that he was surpassing people of his own age in Judaism. He was one of the most respected young rabbis of his time before he met Christ. So for someone like him to come to know Christ is obviously nothing short of a miracle, but it also gives us some hope. If you... Think about the person that you would think is least likely to ever surrender to Christ. Then you should begin praying for that person. Paul's conversion gives us hope that this is possible. Things that are impossible are made possible in him. Do you think that anyone would have expected this? Like Paul was a pretty known guy for what he was doing. People were like, watch out for him. You know, people were talking about him. So this was... This makes his testimony so powerful because of who he was. Salvation's literally for anyone. You asked the question in small group and like, why did God choose Paul? And really because grace. I read somewhere after that, Paul truly is the apostle of grace. I mean, he he says grace over a hundred times or something in the New Testament to everyone else's like 50 times total or something. And I don't remember the numbers a hundred percent, but... Just that he truly was the apostle of grace, that um, salvation's for anyone, and he didn't deserve it, and we don't deserve it, and he could not have earned it, nor did he want to, because he did not believe. It just makes you feel good that it really is for everybody. It's not for specific people who were born with Christian parents, or who are good people and went to good schools and are educated. It's literally for anyone, even the people that you think are least likely to receive and believe. And nothing that you can do is going to out sin the grace of God. Yeah. And that's important to, um, like, apply along with that. Yeah. 
So that was actually interesting. In small group, when I asked why did God choose him, everybody had these reasons. And we kind of sat there for a minute and just let everybody kind of give out the reasons that they thought. And it's not that those reasons are false, but I think the big thing to know is that it is grace. Paul didn't do anything for God to choose him. Um, He didn't choose him because he was zealous or because he was an achiever and had special talents. He didn't choose him because he did something pleasing to God, obviously, but he chose him because of grace. The other side of that is when God sets you apart before you're born and he already knows he's going to call you for something, I'm sure he does give you certain talents that are going to help you along with that. And what's cool is if you're like the achieving personality and you're already doing things and kind of in kind of just for yourself at this point, and then you are saved, you can use those same talents for your calling. And the good thing now is that these things are backed by the Holy Spirit living within you, adding just that much more to what you're able to do with him. Another big thing reading through 13 through 17 is if you're reading his story of conversion, it starts out with all these eyes. He's like, I did this, I did this, I did this. He's giving himself all of this credit. He worked hard. He earned his position. But after his conversion, he's telling us all the things that God did. He set me apart. He called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. And what we can take away from that is just God did it. God did it all. God did it by his grace. God did it for his glory. God did it. It is nothing that Paul did to be able to say, this is why I'm worthy. This is why I deserve this. It's all God. It is cool that he came from a a Jewish background as um, like a prominent Jew, just because of the knowledge that he had in the Old Testament. I mean, he would have known the Old Testament like the back of his hand. And just to be able to marry the two and to say this prophecy was fulfilled, like this happened and like this is the you know, this is the reason this happened or, or whatever. I think it's cool too, because I think on top of saying like, I divinely received this message, but also thinking of someone who was a Jew converted to Christianity, being able to tell them like, this happened and this is why, and like, this is the outcome. I think it would be believable on top of everything else that he did know. And again, that he wasn't looking for something to change his mind. So just kind of that added in there too it would have been really really easy for people open to it to listen because he was so knowledgeable in the old testament so yeah and that just helps it be that much more believable truthful like you you just know yeah things can be proven like that we have a a, we have a much broader perspective because we know the full story yeah and back then it was like well paul's like he, you know, someone could have been like, well, Paul said that he, you know, that God appeared to him. And then, oh, you know, there were people there that witnessed it. And then he was blind for three days or whatever. And those are things that I'm sure could be proven. But when Paul didn't write Acts, Luke did. Yeah. So that's cool because yeah. Luke confirms what Paul said as well. Yeah. I just think that it's cool, I guess, that on top of I was divinely appointed. But if you don't believe that, listen to this. And I don't know. You, I almost feel like you couldn't hear Paul's story and be like, hmm, I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe. They're, I guess they're, they're out there. <laughs> I want to read something that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and it's in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the same, the beginning of this is the same um, 
first that we told you in the introduction kind of gives you a definition of the gospel. But I'm going to read the whole thing. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. (laughs) Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. It was I and now it's he. And even he's backing it up in all of his letters that you read. He'll say things like, I'm the least of these and and I'm unworthy. And it's just amazing that he was able, as someone who who had that personality type even. We learned that in Philippians too, where he's like, if anyone can brag, it's me. I can brag about all of my accomplishments and whatever, but basically none of it matters because it's not me who matters. It's Christ. Yeah. And it doesn't even matter if I'm the one that preached and saved that person or you are because we're all in this. We're after the same goal and that is to bring glory to God. And what you said at the beginning, it's not a checklist. Like he didn't check the box of salvation on like Paul saved these people's like Excel sheet. He... (laughs) He cared and it was, it didn't matter if you had heard it and he was coming back to reiterate it. He cared about your salvation, not because of him or that you even heard it through him, period. So, okay, to wrap up, we're going to look at what kind of happens in verses 18 through 24. And the importance of this passage is that Paul did not receive teaching from these pillars in the Jesus movement, he received it directly from God. Um, and we've kind of talked about that a little bit, but I do want to touch on one thing. He says, that this James that he is talking about is the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, was the most influential leader of the Lord's Church in Jerusalem. And James is probably going to be the next book that we study after this, so that'll be cool to get into. But he was also not one of the original 12, just like Paul, because he becomes an apostle after Jesus' death. We learned in the Gospel of John that James was a non-believer. So it's just really sweet to see that not only does he come to know the Lord, but he ends up being one of the most influential leaders in the Jerusalem church, which is where the church started. So first church ever. That is really, really cool to see how far he's come. In verse 24, this is like, it just is really good wrap it up for chapter one. Yeah. Um, they heard that a persecutor was now preaching the faith that he tried to destroy and they glorified God. First of all, that tells us that our testimony should bring glory to God. And that our lives should bring glory to God. But it's also important for us to be able to share and know why we are Christians. It's going to make us relatable. Um, It makes us human. We need to be able to share all the ugly and broken so that we can bring that glory to God. He was able to set us free from so much muck. And that's the power of the gospel, that we know the strength is not our own, but of God. That is a good way to end it. Make sure you read chapter 2 for the next episode. Music by Scott Holmes.